0: Well, good morning. I have to tell you that I've been working on this message for the last couple of weeks, off and on. Because this last week we went to the Eco National Gathering, it's the conference for our denomination, and I wanted to make sure that I had time to work on it. But I will tell you that because I've been working on this for the last couple of weeks, I felt the weight of this message for the last couple of weeks. Last week was. A challenging message that Pastor Pete preached. And this week is a challenging message as well for a couple reasons. One, we are covering the entire span of chapter 2 of Romans. You could spend an entire sermon series on chapter 2. And so that's a bit of a challenge. But it's a challenge also because we're talking about judgment. And I don't know about you, but I don't really like talking about judgment. At least not when it convicts me, Right? And reading through this, it certainly has been a convicting passage to read through. But it also is an exciting passage, especially at the end, because we get to this point at the end where there's this glimmer of hope. And Romans is this book that really has both aspects to it. It has these really challenging messages, and it also has this really beautiful, wonderful hope. I think it's fascinating that this book that we are looking at, and in particular this chapter, was written by... Paul, a man who in his previous life, if you will, was a persecutor of Christians, this man who judged and persecuted Christians. And now here he is, an apostle, one sent by Christ to communicate this message. He's speaking with the authority of Christ on these matters, and he is specifically talking about judgment. Paul points out at the very beginning of this that no one is with excuse for such behavior, neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all guilty sinners deserving of God's judgment. Well, that isn't so encouraging. And I don't know about you, but I like to think of myself as a good person. I imagine you probably do too. I think oftentimes we think about ourselves as good people and we talk about ourselves as good people in a variety of different ways, one of which is we compare ourselves against people that we see doing really bad things, right? We compare ourselves against people that steal or perhaps physically hurt others, people that uh, do things that get them locked up in, in jail. And I think, well, I don't do those things. I don't steal. I don't physically hurt people. I, I work hard. You know, I, when I say things like, last year I, I volunteered for the Iron Man race. I, I passed out water. When I think, well, I use my blinker. I recycle. I'm a good person. When we compare ourselves to others, we participate in this thing called fundamental attribution error. And it really comes down to this. It's this idea that when we see other people doing things that we don't like, that we think are bad, we attribute those things to their character. We we attribute those things to who they are as people. But for us, when we do the same sorts of things, we attribute those things to our circumstances. When I see you doing something wrong, that's because you're a bad person. When I do something wrong, that's just because the circumstances dictated that I do this. Anybody been there? You're not raising your hands, but I hear some (laughs) some, nods. I see some nods. It happens. I've done it. I imagine that you probably have done it as well. We compare ourselves to others, and it might go something like this. Did you hear that John got fired? He was just so lazy. He never did any work. Definitely didn't pull his weight. He's always scrolling through his social media feed at work. Flip side of that. Yeah, I got fired. Can you believe that? They said I wasn't pulling my weight, I wasn't working hard enough. Well, if they'd just given me more to do, then I wouldn't have had to spend my day scrolling through my social media feed. John is lazy. I am not being given enough work to do. We participate in this sort of thing where we start judging other people for doing the same exact things that we might do. And this might be a silly sort of example, but we are so quick to judge. And in our judgment, we gloss over our own shortcomings. For some reason, I don't know why we do this. I don't know why I do this. And I don't know why you probably have done this. But it seems like we think we can pull the wool over God's eyes, I, He's not really going to see what's happening. He's not really going to know what's going down. We use these euphemisms like shortcomings instead of sin. The reality is shortcomings that we see in others also reside in us. The sin that we see in others also reside in us. And we demonstrate this lack of righteousness. You know, some of these things that we get upset about are silly, but some of them are more significant. More significant sin And we engage in these things, and as a result, we are rejecting God. Paul points out at the end of chapter 1 some of the types of things that people engage in. This is by no means a comprehensive list. This is not all of the things that people engage in. This is not necessarily saying that people engage in all of these things. But envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, these are things that people do, and when we see other people do them, We judge them. When we participate in things like this, we try and turn a blind eye. We justify our behaviors, yet we are sinful people and we are not just. We are, as Pastor Pete mentioned last week, we are totally depraved. That doesn't mean that everything that we do is wrong, but it means that in all areas of of our life, sin has infiltrated them and tainted them. There is no part of our life that is untouched by sin. The only one who is perfect, that is untouched by sin, that is just, is God. And really, God is the only one in a position to cast judgment. That includes judgment on you and I. It's this God who's in a position to deal with the hypocrisy that we demonstrate when we condemn others for the very same things that we do ourselves. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is writing in this diatribe style. He's essentially having this kind of hypothetical sort of argument with the reader of this this letter. He starts throwing these arguments out there, and he starts talking in kind of this rhetorical sort of way. At the beginning here, he's not necessarily addressing the Jewish people. That kind of comes later, but you almost wonder if he's talking in this way to draw them in, as if not to scare them. Because some of the things that are coming are pretty shocking. If you'd read with me from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Really across the board, philosophers, religious leaders, and probably you and I would agree with the fact that to say one thing, to profess to believe one thing, and to do the complete opposite is not really all that great, right? The idea of not practicing what we preach, that's not a good thing. And there's kind of this consistent thought that what we say and what we do should be in congruence with each other. Paul calls people to take sin seriously, not simply by calling out others, but by living a life consistent. With those professed values. As a disconnect between the two will lead to God's judgment. As it says in Matthew, you and I have to deal with that log, that plank in our eye, before we can even see clearly to deal with the speck in our brother or our sister's eye. We have to take care of the things going on in our lives before we can even approach the conversation of dealing with those things in someone else's life. God brings about judgment because we are in need of judgment. Because he is good and he is just and he is the only one capable of carrying out such judgment. And God's judgment does not befall those with excuse, but rather those with no excuse. And the reality is that is all of us. As we read in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you and that means me. I love this quote from John Stott. He says, For if our critical faculties are so well-developed that we become experts in our moral evaluation of others, we can hardly plead ignorance of moral issues ourselves. If we are so good at seeing the shortcomings of others, we have no excuse to not see the shortcomings in our own lives. I don't know about you, but that really cuts deep. That cuts to the quick. Quick. As Paul points out, there's perhaps the assumption that the judgment we believe others are deserving of can't possibly be the same judgment that I am due, in spite of the fact that I am carrying out the very same sinful actions. Why is it that we sometimes like to believe that God doesn't really mean what he says? We certainly act like that's the case. Like we don't really think God's going to follow through. God's not really going to do what he tells us he's going to in Scripture. However, Paul says that that same judgment falls on us. Here's this incredible thing. In the midst of this passage on judgment, we learn something else about God. We learn that in addition to being a just God, God is also a kind God. If you read Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God points out that, or Paul points out that God is kind, that he is patient, that he demonstrates forbearance, but he doesn't do so for the purpose of allowing us to walk all over him. He doesn't do so for the purpose of allowing us to continue walking down the paths that we are going. He does so. So that we have an opportunity to turn from our ways, to repent, to come back to the Lord. And I will tell you, I am so thankful for this because time and time again, I do things that I know I'm not supposed to do. And I'm so so glad that God is gracious and gives me time and space to turn back to him. What if in that moment when we commit that sin, there's instant judgment right then and there? We would be in terrible, terrible shape. But God is kind and he demonstrates his forbearance and patience. And this is this gracious gift that allows us the opportunity to turn from our sin, from our wicked ways and come back to the Lord. God endures our disobedience and ongoing suffering, sinful activities for the sake of helping us come to a place where we are willing to repent. When we don't repent, at the end of the day, we avoid doing the very thing that draws us back to God. And it demonstrates that we still are in need of refinement. We are still in need of work in the area of humility. We are still developing a trust in God. And it certainly speaks to the stubborn and hardened nature of our hearts. Hearts that are in need of circumcision, as Paul points to later in this chapter. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that in Matthew here, he talks about this idea of storing up treasure and where we are to store up our treasure. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Both Matthew and Paul point to this correlation between the state of our heart and the reward that awaits us. If your heart is soft and you are repentant, leading you to obedience, there is great treasure that awaits you. However, however, if your heart is impenitent, if you are not bearing good fruit, if you are storing up for yourselves things in this earth, there is wrath that awaits you, as God will most certainly bring about his judgment. He will render to each one according to his work, as it says in verse 6. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, but I thought it wasn't about works. I thought it was about faith. I thought we were saved by God's grace through faith. And the answer to that question is, yes, we are. We are saved by God's grace through faith. The Apostle Paul, the same person who is writing here in chapter 2, he also writes in chapter 3, and he expresses this very thing. He also expresses it in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves look better in the eyes of God. In the book of James, we're reminded, however, that faith without works is dead. That's because our works, our actions, are the evidence of our faith. They are the fruit of our faith. They're They're the outpouring of this faith that we profess. And if we have been transformed in our hearts, the fruit of that transformation should bear itself out in our lives. There should be a demonstration of this faith that we profess. In verses 9 through 11, Paul says this. He says that there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is interesting. This is not just for the pagan Gentile. For the pagan criminal. This is for the Jewish teacher of the law. God's judgment is for all people. What God's judgment does do is it looks at whether or not we have this true faith that has led us to seek God and to walk in his ways. It's by such faith that we are justified as we will see in chapter 3. But if our faith is not genuine, if we are self-seeking, and living in opposition to God, what awaits us is wrath. I don't know about you, but I'm not so thrilled about wrath. I don't like the idea of wrath. And yet very clearly God communicates that wrath is something that is a possibility. In verses sixteen, excuse me, twelve through sixteen, Paul furthers his point about God being impartial when it comes to his judgment by pointing out that simply because the Jewish people have heard the law, that does not preclude them from God's judgment. Whoa. Put yourself in the position of a Jewish reader of this letter. And you are hearing that even though you are God's chosen people, that does not mean that you are safe from God's judgment. He's telling this Jewish audience that just because God has chosen you, does not mean that you are safe, as it were. Paul is now clearly, specifically addressing his Jewish reader, telling them that in spite of being descendants of Abraham, in spite of circumcision, and specifically in spite of receiving the Ten Commandments, the law, you still will be judged. You are still at the mercy of God and His judgment. Now God, and this is an important part, God is not rejecting his covenant. He is not saying this covenant is not important. It's not saying that it doesn't exist. But he is pointing out that they are over-reliant on this covenant. That what they do still does matter. That having relationship with God still is foundational. They have perhaps become complacent as a chosen people. On the flip side, simply because the gentiles were not given the mosaic law does not mean that they are simply condemned rather it says that the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness what does all of that mean paul is saying that because god has impressed his law on the hearts of the gentiles they too have some degree of understanding of who he is and what he desires and this moral law they understand to some degree what is right and wrong while they may still suppress that and try and keep that down and may not totally be aware of it, it is there, it is inside of them. This is a part of God's general revelation. The point being made is that within all of humankind, God has given us a conscience and the ability to be aware of his moral law. And as such, there is a degree of understanding of what is right and wrong, and subsequently there is a level of accountability Paul says that because they were given the Mosaic law, the Jewish people will be judged according to the law, while the Gentiles will not be judged according to the Mosaic law, but rather the law that has been written on their hearts. But in both cases, verse 13 says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's the doers of the law who will be made right with the Lord. Because God cares about how we live. What good is faith if it doesn't transform our lives, our conduct, our character, the ways in which we engage with other people? Judgment will take place based on the knowledge each person has. This is the case for the Jew and for the Gentile. And Paul continues with his emphasis on this hypocrisy of confessing one thing and doing something else. And he points to Jewish people relying on on the law and boasting about God and teaching others the law while not following the law themselves. It reminds me of that stock quote. Now they're confident in Scripture, they're aiding others, they're guiding others in good ways, and that's all well and good. It's good for us to know Scripture, it's good for us to help others. But verses 21 through 24 say, You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 52. Now certainly Paul is not identifying, again, these as the only sins that somebody might participate in. Or that everybody participates in these specific sins. But they paint this picture of hypocrisy. There are things that are taking place here that are not consistent with what is being preached. There's a disconnect between word and deed, between thought and action, between belief and unbelief. And as a result, Paul is saying that they are not representing God well amongst non-Jewish people. They're not a positive witness. And moreover, They aren't willing to undergo the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The heart work that leads to good deeds. The heart work that brings about transformation. The heart work that leads to repentance. They're not willing to undergo the rather invasive spiritual heart surgery that is required. Paul points to circumcision as a sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. Now, this is a significant outward expression of the covenant, yet a sign that ultimately is of little value if it is not accompanied by actions that reflect relationship with God. Verse 25 says, For circumcision is, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Paul goes so far in verse 26 to ask kind of this rhetorical question. He says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision c- circumcision be regarded as circumcision? To which he answers yes, that they will stand at the judgment of those circumcised Jews that merely have an outward sign of covenant. This again is a shocking statement. Think about what is being said here. This outward sign of the covenant that was taken very seriously, if not accompanied by word, that is basically as if it never happened. Paul says that this significant outward expression of the covenant with God is essentially worthless if a person's life does not reflect a transformed life. And this is because... Ultimately, circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of invasive spiritual heart surgery by the Holy Spirit. We see this truth all the way back in the Old Testament. We go all the way back to Deuteronomy. We see in chapter 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Jeremiah chapter 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. See, circumcision of the heart is a process of cutting away our pride and ego, our selfish and self-centered ways so that our hearts might beat in time with God's. It's a work that God does in us so that we might have faith that leads us to repentance and a life of works that testifies to the goodness of God. This is what we'll be judged on. What we do, how we live, it does in fact matter. An outpouring of deep, vibrant faith through the way we live is the mark of one chosen by God. At the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, through Christ's work on the cross and the spiritual surgery of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we Gentiles are grafted into God's family see this more in chapter 11. I love this imagery though. As someone who loves working in in the yard, in my garden, I love this idea of being grafted in. You can take one type of apple and you can graft it onto another type of apple tree and both types of apples will grow on this one tree and it will flourish and will produce good fruit. That's what is taking place here. Paul is redefining what it means to be a Jew. He's saying that even the Gentiles are being brought in and grafted into this family of God. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. As such, we have the great privilege and responsibility to live lives as God's chosen people. Lives in keeping with God's truth, recognizing that it is not our responsibility to judge others, but rather to bear witness through our actions to the faith that we profess. But this requires us to go to the doctor, so to speak. Jesus is the great physician. He has the power to heal us physically. But it is also the work of the great physician and his Holy Spirit that our hearts are repaired. And this is an invasive work that can require cutting away significant parts of who we are. Our pride, our selfishness, our ego, our security our identity, and we may be hesitant, if not full-on resistant, to going to the doctor, to the great physician, because this process, this procedure is so invasive, and it certainly comes at a cost. I don't know about you, but I don't like going to the doctor sometimes because I know it's going to be expensive. Anybody ever been there before? Ah, I don't know if I need to go to the ER, urgent care, Like it's just, I'm just not feeling super great, I don't want to spend all that money. There's a cost that is associated with going to the doctor. And in this case, that is certainly true. It's a process that will hurt. And there may be days where it feels like there are setbacks. If you've ever undergone some sort of procedure, you know that at times it feels like it's two steps forward, one step back. You might not feel like things are going as expected. It's a process that involves daily rehabilitation daily rehabilitation in the Word, daily rehabilitation in prayer, daily rehabilitation in worship, then as is the case with ordinary physical therapy, the more consistent that we are with our rehab, the more dedicated that we are, the more disciplined that we are, the better the results will be. The stronger our hearts will be, the deeper our faith will be, the more reflective our actions will be of God's transformative and redeeming work In our lives, you and I need to go to the doctor. Because this good book tells us that a day of judgment is coming, and that's not a lie. We will have to give an account for our actions. And we don't want to presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, as it says in verse 4. We don't want to delay. We don't want to put this off because we don't know when that's going to happen. But it will happen. That day will come. And we need to humble ourselves before the Lord in repentance, asking the Lord to perform whatever spiritual heart surgery is required. Would you pray with me? Lord God, if I'm totally honest, I don't like going to the doctor. That's true in my ordinary life, Lord, but that certainly is true spiritually at times. I don't like coming to you because it can be painful and it can cost me something. Because I'm not necessarily willing to let go of some of these things. Because I know that it's going to require sacrifice. Might require a change of my ways, Lord. But Lord, I thank you for the fact that you want to transform our lives. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can come inside of us and repair our hearts that are broken, that are sinful all of the things that keep us from you, Lord, you can remove those things. Lord, as we come before you today, I pray that we would have a willingness to allow you to work in our lives, that we might repent of those things that keep us from you, that we might turn from our sinful ways, and that our lives would reflect your transformation in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for this place where we can come to be challenged and stretched. It's not always comfortable and perhaps, Lord, we don't always want to hear what you have to say to us. But I pray today that we would. I pray that I would take seriously this message that you have Impressed upon my heart over the last couple of weeks. And I pray that we as a body would do the same. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming to the table today. And this is such a special, special time. And we've talked before about how we have this incredible invitation to come to this feast, to participate in the Lord's Supper. But I wonder if today as we come to the table, as much as we talk about an invitation to a meal, perhaps today it is a scheduled appointment for surgery. And perhaps we come to the table today recognizing that we need the Lord to do work in here. Whatever that is for you, whatever that is for me, this is the place to come and have that done. And so as we come to the table today, we come to the table recognizing that God has done this beautiful work for us. And he has invited us to this table to receive these elements for that work to continue. But perhaps today, you and I need to come to this table for surgery. To have our, heart, our hearts transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to take a moment in prayer, and as we do so, I encourage you to confess whatever it is that might be on your heart that's keeping you from living out that faith that you profess. Whatever it is that's keeping you at bay from God, those lies that you are telling yourself, those things that you are judging in others but not dealing with in your own life, so that we can come to the table today with clean hearts, excited about what God is doing in our own lives and in this place. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for today. I thank you for a challenging word. Because to be honest, sometimes we just need a kick in the pants. We become complacent. We forget just how serious all of this is. We forget what can happen when we give our lives over to you. The beautiful transformation that takes place. And so, Lord, we take a moment of silence here to confess before you those things that we have done that are keeping us at bay. The sin in our life that needs to be given over to you so that our hearts can be transformed. as we come to the table, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples for a meal. And they met together, and after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. And similarly, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He said, drink this cup in remembrance of me. And every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes again. I invite our servers to come forward. If you are sitting in this section over here this morning, I invite you to go to the station. If you are in this section here to come out and around at the station, similarly over here, out and around, and far station, out and around. We'll prepare to serve you here and then invite you to the table in just a moment. I invite you now to come to the table.